So we created an MVP of Ashore, kind of with bubblegum and duct tape with one developer uh, and doing a lot of the front end ourselves in 2017. And within about six months, had acquired about 4,000 users. And so we had determined that, you know, the idea was validated, right? But the software was absolute junk. I mean, it did not work well. I mean, we, we had a, like a churn problem more than anything. Welcome to SaaS Origin Stories. Tune in to hear authentic conversations with founders as they share stories from the earlier days of their SaaS startups. We'll cover painful challenges, early wins, and actionable takeaways. You'll hear firsthand the do's and don'ts of building and growing a SaaS, as well as inspirational stories to fuel you on your own SaaS journey. Here is your host, Phil Alves. Code, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for coming to the show. It's great to have you. Thanks, Phil. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So first, could you tell us a little bit about your SaaS, Ashore, and what problem does it solve? Ashore was built out of the need for better digital collaboration. Uh, I had started my career uh, in a creative agency context. There were two problems that uh, I experienced thoroughly throughout my entire career. And, and that was at first, it's difficult to get feedback on uh, digital collateral. The second is that uh, it's difficult to understand feedback. Uh, the problem primarily is that people who are not creatives um, kind of struggle to use uh, the design language that creatives use. And so when we initially set out to build a shore, we tried to do two things really, really well. Uh, the first was to automate the approval process, and the second uh, was to make feedback contextual so that we can reduce the number of meetings where we have to review feedback, uh, reduce the number of iterations, and uh, bring joy to everybody involved. Awesome. I like it. So, so in addition, so it looks like it's more than a software. It's putting the right process in place so designers and customers can communicate in a way that they both understand. Like, so you're solving, more than giving them a software, you're solving the communication problem. Is that a right conclusion? That's 110% the problem. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's exactly it. The, the way that most people try to solve for this problem without software like Ashore uh, is that they'll sit, like, let's say you're a print shop down the street from your office in, in Salt Lake, um, and you have created a design for a sign. Let's just say it's a, just a, a proof of a sign, right? Uh, nine times out of 10, uh, print shops are going to be sending uh, that sign proof, that PDF, uh, via email uh, to people who are not tech savvy, who are not creatives, who don't speak the same language to consumers, right? Uh, and those people um, might not respond. You have to remember to follow up with them. Uh, and when they give feedback, they, they might be saying, I, I don't really like that ghosting effect that's on top of the image. What they really mean is like a a dark overlay, you know, with like 50% opacity on, on the black, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, what Ashore is, is trying to do is make sure we're all using the same language to describe the thing. So I can actually force you to point at something and say, this thing is the thing I don't like. Uh, and then meanwhile, if I, if you forget to review, there's things like automated reminders and, um, all sorts of like, approval stage automation. So, uh, I gave print shop as a really simple example, but uh, the the people that find a shore 
the most useful. We, we call them high-velocity creatives. These tend to be people in creative agencies, promotional print, product apparel, um, people who are sending files for review all the time. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's kind of the problem to solve. I love it. Love it. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's, a, it's a good problem to solve, and I'm sure you have to have the experience in the area to understand that problem well. And, of course, you, can, you say you came from the UX background, working in agencies. Now you have your own agents. What made you drive to, like, okay, I want to become an entrepreneur? What was, like, the yeah. decision how you went from working with agents into owning your own agents? Uh, being super naive, probably. <laughs> Uh, I, I, so I, I became a full-time entrepreneur in uh, February 2015. So it's it's been over just over seven years now. I started Brandcave, my, my first startup, because um, I was working at a at a, one of the fastest growing PR agencies in Dallas. Uh, I was overworked and understaffed, underpaid. Uh, I thought at that time it would be a smart idea. To, to take the road to take the the show on the road and ho hopefully make you know similar amount of money or more uh, and work less it's kind of exactly the opposite I worked uh, a whole lot more made a lot less initially and you know seven years later I think we've started to figure it out so so brain cave is at nine and three. nine 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 zero yeah nine zero no, no, nine nine under ten nine Nine. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Cool. And so you made that switch. You have Brinkade for how long? So you said about seven years. Yeah, that's right. And when did you start your your, your SaaS? Was it last one year start get bought? So um kind of conceptualized the idea and the need for a shore around 2017. Um we do a lot of UX, so we initially began that process, you know, determining business and user requirements, uh, creating flowcharts of the application, uh, designing prototypes. And then we met with, uh, me and my partner met with, uh, like all the major creative agencies in Austin, all the creative directors at those agencies and just kind of shot the idea to make, make sure that the issue that we were experiencing at brand cave was the same issue that other agencies were also experiencing. And the answer of course was yes. Um, so we created an MVP of Ashore kind of with bubblegum and duct tape with one developer uh, and doing a lot of the front end ourselves. Uh, in 2017, and within about six months, ha had acquired about 4,000 users. And so we had determined that, you know, the idea was validated, right? But the software was absolute, absolute junk. I mean, it, it, did not work well. I mean, we we had a like a churn problem more than anything. Um, so we actually ended up deciding to rebuild the product from scratch. Uh, made that decision in 2019. Spent about six months rebuilding it. Um, brought on a CTO uh, to manage that process and launched the product fresh in 2020. Um, and that's a product that we've been going on since then, and it's been incredible it's been a huge huge journey i look at your product it looks amazing and, and I, I see a lot of people go to that same process and sometimes it, people are afraid of going to the process you know like put something together take it to market prove the concept and then when you have more money you you build version two um 
and that version two is a lot better. Uh, it's uh, again, sometimes so many times people are afraid of making that leap, taking products to market, and, and just be better the second time. So yeah. talking about that leap and hiring that the CTO, how was the process doing that for the second time? Tell us a little bit more about that. Going into a short, we expected the product to be a low quality uh, because just like you said, we were taking this very MVP. We didn't want to spend much. We wanted to validate the idea, validate the market fit. Um, and, and so we, we knew at some point there would either need to be major refactoring or a complete overhaul. Um, it turned out that our architecture uh, was like just just not not suited for growth. Um, so it, it really just comes down to having small iterations of success, right? Just being able to validate early and fail quickly uh, and, and build out from there. They usually say there's no ROI in rebuilding a product. And I think that's true for the most part. Uh, but for us, the thing that it enabled for us was not just a more sustainable product that our customers love, but we also were able to increase our development velocity because now we had architecture that uh, we could lean on moving forward. Uh, and then also we had taken all of the experience from the previous years of Ashore uh, and then fit that into a product that we knew was exactly what our users needed based on those user feedback from the, the 4,000 people who had signed up initially. That's great. Congrats on making on making that jump, making that leap. I understand that decision sometimes is hard, but yeah, sometimes you have to make it. Uh, and that's, that's pretty cool. So yeah. I believe that the, the founder, it is the, what makes or break it a SaaS. Uh, and why do you think you were the right SaaS, the right founder for your SaaS? So like for sure, like what do you think about you made you the right person to, to lead the effort? Uh, that's probably true, but the way that I see myself in Ashore is um, an enabler, right? Like the the model of leadership that I'm trying to adopt for myself and within the culture of our companies um, is is one where it's not someone from the top shouting down, but it's someone who's enabling others to have ownership um, and to do their jobs really, really well. And so ultimately, I see myself more of, uh, as someone who uh, provides the vision and then the resources for the people who, who are at Brand Cave and Ashore uh, to fulfill their role really, really well. Um, so ultimately, I, I want, uh, as a leader, I, I want to enable economic flourishing for the people that work for me. I, I want them to be happy. I want them to enjoy their job. Um, I want them to be motivated by our mission. Like Ashore's mission is to make collaboration accessible to everyone. And that's a really lofty mission. And if I can get you to buy into that, then we can come up with some really great ideas to solve some huge communication issues. Um, so am I right, the right founder? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I, I, I feel like there's uh, so many ways that I, I fail every day, to be fair. Um, but I, I think it requires like a certain level of resilience um, to be a founder to be a good founder. There's so many days you're going to be hitting your head against a wall and it's not going anywhere. And then at some point, months later, a year later, there's a bit of a breakthrough and your head's sore, but like you freaking did it, right? There's there's that level of, res of resilience. I mean, with that, just paired with it, you have to have persistence. And also you have to have perspective, right? Because you go six months and, and things are shit. Uh, it might make you want to give up, right? 
Like you're just, you're in, you're spinning. You can't figure it out, but having the perspectives to know, like it gets better. You just have to work the system. Uh, and it does. Right. So I think those three qualities, uh, probably, um, are required in every good entrepreneur. And I, and I think that's what I'm learning from myself as well. Yeah, for sure. And holding that vision, it, it is that so hard, especially like you say, when things are hard, when we as founders are afraid ourselves and you have to keep holding that vision, keep moving that team forward. And at the same time, not micromanaging, you have a lot of smart yeah. people in your team. You want them to bring ideas to the table, but you are the one that brings that vision. Uh, and yeah. I would imagine that going through that miscommunication in your career, it's what made you think, okay, I want to make communication easier and I want to empower those teams. And, and you, you're able to propel that vision very well. Uh, I don't think that makes a huge difference too. That's awesome. Thanks for saying that. It's, it's true. I mean, when we look at creative agencies um, and, and creatives in general, the employee attrition is in most creative agencies around 25%. It's a huge amount of creative burnout. Um, and that primarily comes from working with clients. In every creative agency, the, the saying is like, it'd be great to work at a creative agency if you didn't have clients. <laughs> so being able, <laughs> being able to bring the joy back um, to the lives of these people who are like, their job is to create. And when you're stuck in meetings and you're stuck trying to understand feedback and you're getting frustrated with all parties involved because you're, you're going through these like dreading these approval processes, if we can bring joy back into those people's lives, I think we can accomplish this mission. Yeah, that's the mission. Like when you when you say it that way, man, I want to go help you with that. That's amazing. <laughs> I think that's why you get your team going. <laughs> you know, yeah, for sure. <laughs> we want to solve that problem. I was talking with uh, we have a, a back end engineer. Uh, and I was in a just kind of an ad hoc meeting with him two days ago, and he was like, "I've I've worked on other projects, and uh, I always go home at the end of the day, and I do whatever else, and I, I enjoy my life. But for this project, I I freaking dream about it. He's like, I dream about solving like some of the back end like features that we're working on in in my dreams. And I was like, that's that's how you know you're you're the right person for the job." Yeah, and I would add more. That's when you know that the vision, it's getting to their heads. They understand the problem that they're solving, that they're going to make people's lives easier as they are building the product that you're building. So definitely doing a good job uh, as a leader. When you say, I don't know if I'm the right founder, I'm sure you are. You understand the problem and you're taking it down and, and you can see from your people as they're, they're loving working on that. So when did you know you built something something that people love at what point you're like okay i have something that people really love uh and, and how did you know that well i i think it comes down to making sure you have market fit with your product right um like you when you build software you especially as a bootstrapped you know software company like like mine you can't be all things to all men you have to say these are the people in particular that we're going to solve this issue for um, and we're going to solve it for them initially. Um, so if we can pick one people group, and in our case, we we picked what we defined as high velocity creatives, which really come down to, you know, two different uh, demographics. Um, if we can just solve this issue for them, um, then we can expand out from there. But let's let's get like market hold just on these people alone. Um, 
So it helped that I come from this world, that I share the problems uh, that they also have. So I knew when I was solving the problem for myself, uh, to some extent, I'd be solving it for others as well. Um, um, we're, we're definitely fitting kind of an SMB model right now. Um, so, and there are, there are plenty of them with similar issues. So I, yeah, I think it comes down to really understanding who you're solving the product for. Um, and it helps if you're one of those people. So maybe that's how I should say it. I think they make a huge difference if you're one of those people. Uh, yeah. Even the most successful SaaS out there, like I think Airbnb, they were solving a problem for them. Like they need some money and they were, let's rent this space. I think that that's huge. Yeah. And I tell that people all the time, especially if you're building a, a SaaS in the B2B space, if you're kind of scratch your own each, it makes a huge difference. Um, yeah, that's right. For the success yeah. of your product. You, you really de-risk it by a lot. Uh, yeah. How did you fund it, the, the product? So Ashore is bootstrapped. Um, initially, it was funded by Brandcave, my first startup. Um, and even today, the resources from Brandcave, uh, in terms of people and, and deliverables, like all the marketing for Ashore is done by Brandcave. Um, so today, Ashore, it, it's growing on its own and it doesn't require the same amount of funding that we have a really healthy growth rate. So, you know, it, it's one of these things where we can keep reinvesting the software, you know, the company back into itself and continue to grow it. Um, but it helps that, you know, we have these people and this talent from Brandcave that can continue building that funnel. So that's kind of been the model until now. I think that's kind of a unique model. Most people don't have a creative agency with nine employees in their back pocket, but yeah. yeah but what I would say that many people have, they many times have a service company in the industry they know well. Oh, and the way to point. scout the service company or to open new ventures, it's to like, let me serve people like me and build a software for the same service. I, I think I see that all the time. Like we have done software for companies like driving schools. So like you are the industry knowledge, you have the industry knowledge and you're an expert and that really helps you. But you talk yeah, about marketing. Let's dive deep into marketing. Sure. How did you get your first 10 customers? So we built a landing page for Ashore um, and it was before the product, the MVP was released. So it was for sign up only. Um, we had a lot of people guest blog on the site um, because of Brandcave and, and our inbound marketing prowess there. Uh, we, we knew SEO. Um, so we began uh, building backlinks uh, for the site through various efforts um, like Haro. Um, we started writing content and targeting keyword phrases that were relevant to certain the company and, and the services that we were trying to sell. Uh, so we, we ultimately just implemented um, the processes that we have in place today just early on before the product was released. Um, so by the time we had actually launched the product, we only had the site up for you know maybe a few months. I think it was like um, we launched the site in December of 2017. I think we launched officially in 2018 in February. So yeah, just like three months or so, I think. Um, I, I feel like the older I get, the more dates just start kind of, they don't mean anything anymore. <laughs> 
but yeah, I think in those three months we, we have acquired like somewhere around a hundred people that just signed up for like beta. And then we, um, you know, sent an email campaign out and said, Hey, you know, sign up for beta today. And it's, it's funny because actually the, the very first customer we ever had on a shore, some company I've never talked with out in Florida, they're still, a, they're still a customer on a shore. So that's kind of cool. That's super cool. And what was the conversion? You say you have a hundred people in their email list. How many, how many of those people actually uh, be, became a customer? Yeah. I mean, pretty, I mean, I guess like high in terms of an email campaign, it was about 20 that actually signed up like for beta. That's, that, that's a bit. I mean, for, for an email campaign, I, I would call that successful. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's super successful. And I think there's a huge takeaway here for early SaaS founders. You start building the product and right away you start building uh, the marketing that's right. uh, and you new organic SEO, uh, but you build the landing page and you start, the traffic start coming a lot before you had a product done. And all you were doing is getting the email. Uh, we know SEO takes a little bit of time, uh, but you right. plan ahead. You didn't wait, oh, I have a product. Now let me go do SEO. You start doing SEO the same time they start building your product. I think that's a huge takeaway for people doing it for the first time. And it, I think, it, like you say, it comes with, you are not, it's not your first time. You are now a seasoned entrepreneur. You're thinking about the future and like, okay, this is going to take a while. So let's just start with that right away. So that, yeah. that's pretty cool. Okay, so that gets your first 10 customers. That's right. That's right. Yeah, I feel like many times people don't think about that. It's such a great point. I've never heard anybody articulate it as well as you have just now. So nice. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that from you and use it in the future. But yeah, no, like before you have a product, <laughs> Get a landing page out. Start doing the things that you need to be doing. Don't wait to do it. SEO takes time. You have to build your domain authority for your your domain. Um, you have to start getting content. I mean, the, the thing is, it's like a what's the phrase about uh, rising ships, right? Like the rising tide, or whatever. Um, when you have everything in place and your domain authority increases, all of your other pages that are targeting the various keywords they also increase in performance. So just start blogging. Get it out there. Um, you know, if you want to get them quicker, spend the money in PPC. But to be honest with you, when you first launch your product, you probably don't have solid market fit. Um, and I mean, sh surely if you have the money to spend, like spend money in advertising to get users. But uh, a lot of that advertising will not turn into bottom line sales. So that's just my thought. If you're going to bootstrap it, just you're being penny conscious, uh, focus on SEO. I think you choose, looks like you, you, you pick one channel and one channel only. And it was a channel that you knew well, which yeah. was SEO. Uh, you know about, okay, maybe I could do PPC later on, but that was the channel that you knew well. Did you eventually incorporate other channels or SEO is still to this day your main channel to, to bring customers? At organic is absolutely the number one channel for us. Um, we do PPC today um, and it, it's actually like, like really, really well, like it, it converts around 9% for AdWords, which is like, great. I'll do that all day long. Um, and it, it helps that we have like a dedicated resource at brand cave that just does PPC. So, you know, does it for sure. No problem. Um, we've done some other more unique things lately. Like we did a partnership with dribble. Uh, if you're, are you familiar with dribble? It's like, it's a website for creatives. It's a, yeah, I'm very familiar, but, let, let, let the listeners know. Tell us a little bit. What, what is Dribble? If someone is not familiar with Dribble, sure. It, a creative community uh, where people who are um, graphic designers or UX designers post their work, and 
Um, ultimately, it's a place where if you're a creative of any kind, you go to like Drupal's kind of the place you go to for inspiration, right? If you're working on a project, um, it, it's it's like the Pinterest for design communities, yeah, if I can say it like that. That's a great description. That, and that was a, an interesting thing last year early on. Uh, we did a campaign with AppSumo, which I don't know that I would ever recommend anyone work with AppSumo, but um, it, it was an interesting learning experience. And probably for bootstrap companies, AppSumo is like a really good way just to get a bunch of users and a lot of feedback really quickly if you don't have a ton. Um, so I don't know that it was the right decision for us to have done it, but I can see really early stage companies having a lot of value in doing a campaign with AppSumo. Are you familiar with that, Phil? Yes, let's explore that. Why you think AppSumo could not be the right decision to you? Like, looks like you made a decision and you're like, oh, maybe I shouldn't have made that. Learn yeah. my mistakes. What did you learn? Why do you think AppSumo could not be the right decision to you? And just to the listeners that don't know AppSumo, it's basically a daily deal website for SaaS products. Most times they do a deal where it's a lifetime deal and, and they get assessed to your product. I would imagine that's kind of like what you did, but tell us a little bit more why you think that wasn't like maybe not the best option for you guys. So I think it would have been a better option if we were super, super, super early stage, like we were weeks out. You know, after launching, we didn't have any users users yet. Um, what we discovered with AppSumo, uh, we we tried not to like promote the AppSumo deal too much, but there was a bit of cannibalization from our user base, which that that kind of sucked because you're you're going from you know MRR monthly subscriptions to people who are purchasing lifetime deals at at a single cost. Um, the the percentages that you get from AppSumo are very low, so. You're hoping that you get quantities, but the problem that we experienced with AppSumo is when even when we asked very specifically for it, there was absolutely zero transparency in their process. Um, and I, I don't think I, I don't want to get too deep into the specifics of it because I don't I don't know if I signed something I probably that probably prohibits me from talking about it. But just to be just to be extra safe, um, I think the process for AppSumo they. Um, intentionally devalue their product, your product as much as possible uh, in order to get you to create the absolute best deal that has no promise or advantage for you, but really great advantage for their users. Um, there's some promises like that they'll, they'll promote you to X amount of people. And what you discover um, after you're in that process, uh, which even if you ask for it, they won't give it to you, is that you actually don't hit as many people as they tell you that you're going to hit. And there's certain things that you have to do in order to, um, in, in order to get more viewers. So anyway, it's, it's a quantity game. You're getting really low percentages. These are lifetime deals. You have software that have, that has monthly expenses. So economically, um, you just have to be really, really careful if you're going to decide to put your product on AppSumo. Uh, because if you're a product like us and you're streaming content, um, and, and this is like there there are real costs involved with running ashore for any user. We're talking about storing files up to two gigabytes in size for any given file, and you know, let's just say that's an MP4 video file. You're streaming that to every approver. You're working with, you know, today we have forty thousand users, and I mean, there's quite a bit involved with that. So I would just be extremely cautious of doing any sort of lifetime deal. 
that, that's what I would say. Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's great to have a view from you, that someone that did and, and what will work out for you. I spoke with other people about Opsumo before. I believe it's amazing if you're doing early stage. Looks like it did too yeah. late. As a funding, like funding, I'm going to fund my product. I'm going to get a bunch of money and fund uh, development for a couple of months. And I'm going to get a bunch of users uh, and get feedback from those users. Um, but th those basically, they're just funding the development. But you were a yeah. little bit late in the process. You already had users. You already kind of had market fit. And so basically what I'm hearing from you is if you are later in the process, you have a market fit, you have a product people are buying, maybe it's not a great idea to go cannibalize uh, what you offer uh, to bring up Sumo. Um, that's kind of like what I got. I, I believe yeah. that's going to be good for some SaaS not good for others. And it's amazing to get your feedback of someone that actually did and how the experience was for you. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much to being transparent yeah. and willing to share. Sure, sure. Hopefully that AppSumo doesn't see this and send a nasty email. The, the other thing that we've done in, in looking for growth channels and opportunities is um, we, we've created some reseller relationships with other software companies uh, who have wholly white labeled our software into theirs. And that's been a really interesting um, growth channel for us. Um, when you're in a space like ours where, and you're dealing with digital collaboration there today, I mean, since the pandemic started, right, there are now a million and one tools for digital collaboration, right? And they're all kind of coming at the problem in different ways, right? You have like Miro and FigJam and uh, whatever Envision just put out, like all these different like whiteboarding tools and that they're doing kind of like one thing of the, creative collaboration process and you have a whole bunch of competitors to assure that has sprung up in the past couple of years and they're all very niche right like they're either solving like website proofing or they're solving you know video proofing really really well specifically um so there's a whole bunch of this going on and, and in order for a product like assure to not only just sustain itself but like grow in a, in a really like substantial way it's important that we put ourselves in positions where um, we're, in, we're not just a standalone product, but we're in an ecosystem of symbiotic products. Um, and so th these integrations are actually like a really important growth model for us. Um, and, and thankfully, when we rebuilt Ashore, we, well, you're a developer, so you understand this. We, we built backend first platforms on .NET Core. So like we're, we're API first. Um, and that API is, is comprehensive. Um, and it, I mean, it's, it's exhaustive. So our, our reseller partners have all of the same endpoints that our own front end does. And then they, they can just create their own front end uh, to what they want to do. But you're handling out the back end and you're part of the ecosystem and they allow us to keep growing. That's and right. That's right. Yeah. Very smart move. Yeah, no, I, I like it. It wasn't it wasn't me. It was my partner. So I have to, I have to thank him for that. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a very smart move. Uh, and what was your biggest challenge to date? Some of this I can't share the, the specifics with you. Uh, we just we just uh, left a scenario. Uh, we we were about to be acquired um, by a company that's very large, and it was a really difficult scenario situation that we there was a lot of things that we were not comfortable with and we were pushing back on. And I think ultimately we killed the deal. Um, we sabotaged it a little bit. Um, and that was, that was a really 
stressful and difficult situation to go through. I'm, you know, I'm, I've never sold a company before. Um, we've always just grown companies ourselves, bootstrapped them ourselves. We're, we're not in this VC world, right? We're not in this private equity world. Um, but it, it looked to be a really interesting opportunity and we decided not, not to move forward. Uh, it's a bit of a mutual decision by the end of it, but that's kind of how it, how it went. Very difficult. So yeah, maybe one day when all the NDAs have all expired, I, I can talk about that situation a little bit more. But, but that's definitely a hard decision for you to make as, as the founder. Like, is not the right time to sell, not. And I'm sure you, you look at all the points, look at your team. You believe you probably could keep growing the business um, individually without outside VCs. And, and you you had to make a decision and you caught a shot the way that you thought would be the best for you and for the business. But I can see how hard of a decision that would be. And probably going to look back at your career five years from now and you're going to be like, that was the right decision or the wrong decision. But it's yeah, hard to know. Exactly. And it's, yeah. it's super stressful to make, to make that decision. <laughs> you know? That's right. But at the end of the day, it's, um, you know, we, we have employees, right? And these people have trusted us uh, with, their, with their careers, at least in this point of their lives. And um, I take that really, really seriously. And so there are things that are major blockers for me to make sure that these people um, aren't put out. You know what I mean? Um, so there, there's require, there's like, there's baggage that comes with acquiring a company. And with ours, you like, you have to get our entire team um, because um, they built this and it's their product. So it, that's how I feel about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. Like as a leader, uh, you can't just throw your team under the bus. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of like what makes them work and, and do the amazing job that they do. And you felt you have this responsibility with your team uh, to to keep providing for them and to keep helping them do this amazing product. Uh, I understand why you made the decision that you made. And I'm sure you made a decision too because you think the product's going to last. You're pretty confident in your product. And uh, at what point did you get to the conclusion? Like, we're building something that's here to stay. This product's going to last. And how did you get there? I think... Um when you when you start a company right you really don't know what you're getting into you think you have a good idea you think you have a product that's really good you start getting positive feedback maybe you have a little bit of organic growth maybe you have some growth via paid means but um when you look at your market and how it's changing right especially in, as i mentioned in the creative collaboration market it's a super competitive space and it's in a lot of ways, um, our competitors are racing to the bottom. Um, and when you, when you make the decision to stay in a super competitive environment like this, um, it's either because you have a strategy, um, and, and you have a certain level of certainty that it's going to work, um, or you're stupid. So, <laughs> um, I think <laughs> what we have uh, is is probably a growth model that is more unique than our competitors, um, and I I'm betting on it to win. And if it doesn't, like, look, we got four offers this year to be acquired, um, so there's there's always that option. I think you guys are in the right path. So you believe in your growth model, you believe in your team, and that's when 
makes you think we're gonna last, we're gonna do well. Yeah, yeah. Like we're getting kind of like to the end. There's a couple of questions that I like to ask for for every founder. Uh, what are some things that you think the early stage SaaS founders should start doing that most of them are not doing at this point? Like, what are some things every early stage SaaS founder, most of them, should start doing that you learn over the years? Um, learn SQL. Why? Man, like get to know your product. Um, like have your hands in it. Um, like if you're a non-technical founder, um, it's really, it's probably very difficult to empathize. Like when, when we're, we talk about software, like we're talking about engineering, like we're, we're not just, uh, this isn't WordPress, right? Like we're, we're not just, uh, throwing things together. We're, we're actually engineering things. And, uh, I think the closer you can get to your own product and understanding it, um, the better, like, you will serve your team. Um, and, uh, found, founders have a move fast and break things like mentality, right? Um, and if you don't know all the details that you should know about your product, you probably move fast and break things and also like break your team. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, learn SQL. Uh, write your own front end code, damn it. <laughs> That's great advice. Please, everyone follow this. I, I think as a founder, even if you're not coding, you need to be able to help your team make technical trade-offs. Yes. And the only way you're going to help your team make those trade-offs is if you understand what's going on. And when you understand, even if you are deciding to move fast and break things, but you understand and your team is 100% sure that you made that trade-off knowing what's going on and that you're going to have to fix, then it's easier for you to keep your team happy because it's a decision that you made understanding everything that's involved. And and that's, I love the advice. I think every founder that's not technical, you don't have to build the product, but at least get to a point where you understand the trade-offs you are doing and yeah. that you can communicate and then you can help your tech with technical team trade, like understand and, and make decisions and just ask questions and, and, yeah, like what's database, what's SQL, how things work. Uh, if you make even the most basic stuff, you're going to have enough knowledge to to be more of a resource for your team because then you have the whole vision uh, of like where we're going and the vision of the decisions that you are making. Uh, I love it. Uh, that's a great advice. <laughs> okay. uh, and what should people stop doing that most people are doing? Like if you're on social media, your friends, you see most SaaS early stage SaaS founders doing it like, dude, stop with that. <laughs> oh man. You know, the, the problem with, with answering that is like different things work for different industries. And you know what I mean? Like I, I can't necessarily, I, I don't know that I'm in a position to tell another founder, like not, not to do something unless they're doing something like to the detriment of their team or their own health. Right. Maybe that, that's how I'd answer that. Like, like, Founders, please like take care of yourselves. Like get enough sleep at night. Um, take a day off. Like, man, I, I work seven days a week for years. Um, I still I'm in the office by six or seven a.m. at the very latest. Uh, you know, there were there were days like most days I work twelve hours a day, right? But like there were years where I work seven days a week, at least twelve hours a day, sometimes fourteen. Uh, if you want a family, like prioritize them. Um, spend time with them on the weekends. Uh, your business will, 
you know, it'll, it'll make it, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's a great advice. I, I think so many times people work too hard. And the problem there too is like you start making bad decisions, right? So if you are like working 14 hours every day and then your team need you to make good decisions, but you're overworked uh, and you start making bad decisions. So you're thinking you're doing good for your business, but you're not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You're just ruining <laughs> your own health and you're making bad decisions for your business. And, and that's just that the culture of workaholic. Yeah, uh, I think that's yeah. changing a lot um, now, but it, it isn't. Yeah. People still think it's it's amazing to say, hey, I work 80 hours this week. And when I hear that, I'm like, okay, what are you doing wrong? <laughs> so, <laughs> something has to yeah, change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, someone told me really early it's on. It's okay that- for like, two or three weeks, but if you're yeah. doing that forever, it's something yeah. wrong. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, someone, someone told me really early on, if, if you're working those kind of hours, it, it's either because you're not good at your job or you have too much work and you need to delegate. Um, so, I mean, it, it's what it comes down to, right? It's like, do you have your processes in place to scale? Um, or do you just need to like develop your own skill set? Um, it might be, both might be true, right? Anyway, yeah, yeah no, sure. I, 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 I certainly haven't figured it out. If you were, if you were there, you think, I think you should just make a go. I'm here. How I'm gonna, I can get out of here. You know, yeah. like, I'm here. I'm working too much. What, what, what is my way out? It's, That's right. It's not an honor to be here. <laughs> it's not yeah. something cool yeah. to be doing. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. And uh, what I, some... I made some some hard rules for myself. Um, I, I, I work early. But I make hard stops at like 5.30 at the latest. Uh, so like, you know, the problem is if you're going to work, like work at times when, when your family is sleeping, right? Like don't lose the family time, right? Make a hard rule that like at least one day a week, like that you will not work. Like, you know what I mean? Just just make some rules for yourself, e- even if you don't feel like you can get past them. Yeah, I, I think so. And I feel like you feel so much more in control once you're able to make those rules like for, for me i don't work fridays uh, yeah yeah that's awesome i'm not gonna be here <laughs> you, you know i don't work friday saturday yeah. and sunday so three days a week i'm out and that's awesome of course my company is in a different position now but it just you feel like i'm in control of the business the business is not in control of me when you do things like that i'm going to stop working at 5 30. you are in control uh and i think yeah we become founders because we want to have certain kind of control of our own life and, and our future. And, and, and that's kind of like a little step towards that. You know, yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. People don't realize that when you, when you, you, when you get into owning your own business, you, you have this initial mentality. that's like you, like, yeah, I'm going to be working for myself. Really it just means like you're, you have like exponential number of bosses. Like, <laughs> like you just have bosses. Yeah. bosses they, across things the got much now. worse at first. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Who in, in the world of SaaS you like you love to take for lunch? Like who is like this person that you love to take for lunch and pick on their brain? Uh, probably Paul Graham. Are you familiar with him? He's behind Y Combinator. He started um, the Yahoo store way back in the day. Um, he wrote a book that was really really influential uh, for me really early on in my career called Hackers and Painters. It's just a collection of essays. I think the guy is just an absolute super genius. Um, really, really appreciate him. And I would love to sit down with him for like a solid coffee. Yeah. I'm lost. So yeah, for sure. Uh, that, that's good. I know him. I watch his YouTube videos, but what's that book? I'm going to definitely read that book. What's the name again? Yeah. yeah I mean, 
it, it came out like several years ago. It's called Hackers and Painters. It's just a collection of the essays that he has posted for free on his website. Um, not all of them like have aged super well. Like he has a one of the essays is like on Lisp, like a programming language that literally no one uses today. Uh, and he's like singing the praises <laughs> of Lisp. <laughs> uh, but he has like um, like the the uh, there's one one of the essays is called uh, Hackers and Painters, in in which he draws the connection between being a, a good programmer, which he he distinguishes programmers from hackers, um, and and also like he ha- he has a like an art history degree, uh, and he 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 thinks similarly about good hackers and people who are like Renaissance painters, and the connections there are just interesting. Like there's so much in software where we. We think in engineering terms, and, and we think programmatically, um, and we and we think in formulas. And um, someone like him, who has helped start the most successful software companies in the world, thinks very differently. So it's it's like a really interesting and unique perspective. Yeah. So and of course we want to learn from that, like because it's the difference that makes the difference. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so, right. Yeah. Uh, Cody, thank you very much for coming on the show. I, I think it was amazing. I learned a lot from you today. Um, some of my biggest takeaways, start marketing right away. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> Be careful uh, with, the, yeah, with the deals you do. Um, yeah. Again, thank you very much for coming and congrats on your product. I hope keep growing. Thanks, Phil. Um, yeah. It, it's been a, amazing to spend some time with you today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. SaaS Origin Stories is brought to you by DevSquad. To find out more about how we help entrepreneurs launch new products and help larger businesses plug in a ready-to-go development team, visit devsquad.com. Add us to your rotation by searching for SaaS Origin Stories in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks for listening and remember, every SaaS hero has an origin story.